Good morning, everyone. It's so good to see you all here in the house of the Lord. We're continuing in this new series of messages. We're going to be uh, following through the rest of the year. Um, I've titled it The Great Rescue, and the point of this series of messages is to give us kind of an introduction to understanding the message of the Bible, what it's all about, how the different books hang together. You know the Bible is actually a collection of 66 books written over a, a period of about 1,500 years. Um, so trying to make sense of the overall shape of the Bible um, and also uh, the different types of books that are in it. So I have planned this year with very carefully selected passages to look at to just hit kind of a, a skeletal understanding of the Bible. Because of that, I want to encourage you to make a, a real big effort this year to not miss any of the messages in the series because uh, given the, the, what I'm covering, I'm not repeating anything. So if you miss a Sunday, you miss a, a chunk of the information. I think you really need to get a good grasp on the Bible. So if you cannot be here physically, which is absolutely the best way to experience this. Uh, you can always do it uh, by watching us online. We live stream it. It's also on YouTube afterward if you can't do it at the time. Uh, but do try to stay up on it because I, 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 hopefully we're building uh, the story uh, of how God uh, did things and how God worked out this great rescue plan. And that's what the Bible is about. It's not a book of instructions. It's not a book of information. It's a, a book through which God is speaking to us with the intent of rescue. And uh, that's why I've titled the whole series, The Bible and Being Found <clears throat> by God. I've titled today's message, God's Best. And we're finishing up chapter one of Genesis. I have a theory about all the mental illness people face in the world today. I suspect it has something to do with despair with a loss of purpose, with this desperate loneliness that comes from suspecting that our lives are meaningless, worthless. And I blame our culture for that. You see, we've been given a creation narrative that makes the universe an uncaring machine that is grinding down to darkness. A story that makes our very existence nothing more than a bizarre accident, a blip that will soon be removed. We're told that this is liberating. That this means we can do anything we want because there's no God watching. What they don't tell you is that that means nothing matters. There's no sense. There's no purpose. And we wonder why people are so deeply depressed. Allow me to suggest an antidote. What if there were a better account of creation? One that does not rob us of meaning and purpose? Well, I'm glad you asked. That's what we're going to be talking about today. Let's start in verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the bird of the heavens, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. There's something interesting here, and this is uh, the first time we run across a plural verb. 
let us make man. And uh, there has been a lot of debate, and people have wrestled with this. What sense do we make of that? Why does all of a sudden God speak in the plural? I will suggest that what answer you come up with to that question probably says more about your theology than it does about Genesis 1.26. There are some things in Scripture that are kind of vague, and we try to make sense of them, but I think this is one of those. We, we do better to just uh, admit uh, we may not know with full clarity than to be dogmatic about it. But let me tell you a few options of the way people deal with this. Some people say that this makes reference to a common ancient Near Eastern idea uh, that there was kind of a council of the gods. Uh, think Mount Olympus, you know, uh, but even before the Roman and Greek gods, older than that, uh, the idea of a heavenly council. And there are a few passages in the Old Testament that kind of play a little bit with that imagery of God holding counsel with some beings. Um, The problem with that is that these small references do not provide any level of detail that would explain exactly who's there in that council and what the purpose of the council is. Uh, Another thing about these passages is that they occur in very strange situations. For example, uh, it might be a a prophet recounting a vision he had. Uh, Or it might be a psalmist uh, in very poetic language talking about God in his Uh, presiding over some kind of heavenly council. Uh, It's also present in the book of Job, which some people read to be not so much a history as an extended parable about the problem of unjust suffering. So in every one of these contexts, we have reason to suspect that perhaps uh, the language being used here is uh, is kind of symbolic and, and not to be taken literally. Um, So there might be objections to thinking, no, God is is referring to some kind of heavenly counsel here. Uh, Other people say, well, what we have here is the first indication of God's true nature as it will be revealed throughout the rest of the Bible. God is triune in nature. God is one God in three persons, indivisibly connected to each other and same in essence and in activity. There's some difference in activity, I'm sorry, but but same in, in essence, one God that is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that what we have here is God conferring within the Godhead, God conferring with himself about this, Father, Son, and Spirit. Uh, others object that that projects back onto Moses Trinitarian thought that Moses likely did not have because it took 1,500 years for the Bible to be written. And it isn't until the final stage of the writing of the Bible that the idea of Trinity becomes uh, a very fully formed idea. Uh, so it's, it's unlikely that Moses would have been thinking of the Trinity as he wrote this. So that's uh, an objection to that. Other, another possibility is that it's the majesty, uh, the plural of majesty. Uh, And uh, we see some indication of that already in the use of of the way the word God is done in the Hebrew Bible. We've already seen that in the the previous verses we've been looking at in chapter 1. Every time in the Hebrew you read God, it's Elohim, not El. Now, the singular for God is El. The plural is Elohim. But uh, every time Elohim is used, it's followed by a singular verb. So it's, you know... 
you might think it's the gods, but then the verb would be did this or made this. Um, so the verb is singular. And what the Hebrews were conveying with that, uh, all the other people, when they talked about gods, uh, it was little g God. And to say God was not specific enough, you needed to describe, okay, exactly which God are we talking about? What exactly is his name? What exactly is his sphere of influence? Is this the God of the river or the God of the ocean or the God of the mountain? Uh, is this the God of the underworld? What is his area of influence? And the Jews understood that all those other gods were made up things. They did not exist. There is only one God who is over all that's why they use the plural Elohim to describe him, even though it is a singular God. The verbs are always singular. Uh, so maybe that's the idea, the plural of majesty, as in when a king would use the third person plural, plural to refer to themselves. It pleases our graces for the armies to attack. Um, sometimes uh, we find uh, even people using the plural about themselves in that sense. Um, I'm not going to tell you which of those three options you should take. I will point out, though, when we get to the next verse and God actually does make man, we revert back to a singular verb. So it's very clear, whatever the plural here means, that there is one God creating. Uh, they're not a bunch of gods. Um, but uh, I think where we really should focus our attention is on what he's making. He says, let's make man in our image, after our likeness. Those two words translated image and likeness uh, have very similar meanings, but there's some nuance there. Image, uh, you should think more as associated with the essence of a thing. And likeness, uh, more with the substance of the thing. I think of it this way, in essence, uh, image deals with the internal nature of what you are, and uh, likeness deals with how who you are interacts with everything else. So it has to do with activity, it has to do with presence, it has to do with what you are in the context of everything else. God says, I'm going to create a creature that is like me inside and outside that is like me in the internal mechanisms of what they are and then the external mechanisms I give them to interact with the world around them. And he creates uh, humankind to represent him and to govern creation, to rule over the fish of the sea, the bird of the heavens, the cattle, the, all the earth is placed under our supervision. Humans are created to represent God. How different is that from just saying, you're an accident. You just happen to happen, and it, you could just as easily have not happened at all. Or to say, God created you to be like him inside and out, to be like him in the internal essence of who you are and in the external capacity to do he made you to be like him. Now, this also speaks to uh, something current, common in Moses' time. Kings in Moses' time would often present themselves as the image of the God. 
And uh, when they made statues of the kings at this time who were claiming to represent a god, the intent when they were creating this statue was not to find a perfect likeness of the external appearance of that king, but they were giving to this statue the kind of attributes that one would uh, associate with the God this person was supposed to represent. So you might wonder why a lot of these king's statues, they all kind of look the same. Uh, It's because they weren't trying to do portraits. They were presenting the king as a representation of the attributes of the God they supposedly represented. Here's a very interesting difference we find in the creation account in Genesis. That idea of representing the gods is not reserved for the king. It's not reserved for the great grand heroes of old. It's not for Hercules or whoever, uh, some great and, uh, you know, the the brightest of the bright uh, among human beings. But it's actually the basic description of every human being. It's not limited to any particular role or achievement. It's built in to all human beings. Verse 27, and God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and become numerous, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the bird of the heavens, and over every wild animal that creeps upon the earth. So God created, I told you, I warned you it was going to switch back to singular. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. When you find something repeated that way, It's kind of a way of saying, did you catch what I just said? Let me repeat it in case you missed it. That's an important bit of information about what we are. We were created in the image of God. And then Moses explains something that's really astonishing given the culture in which he lived. It's very clear that Moses lived in a patriarchal culture. And as we read all the stories in Genesis and really throughout the whole Old Testament, even the New Testament, it's very clear that the Bible was being written in cultures in which women had a diminished value in society. In many cases, they are treated as little more than property and uh, dispensable in every way. And they are barred from a whole lot of things that only men are allowed to do and interact and, and uh, do on this earth. And uh, sadly, that's been the story of the human race to this day. Largely, women have been, been treated as uh, inferior and have been severely limited both in terms of their internal reckoning of their value and worth and their external uh, ability or their external agency in this world. And yet, when he's talking about God creating man in his own image, he makes it very clear that this applies as much to male as it does to female. We have a tendency to think of God as male. That is uh, inadequate. That is uh, not sufficient to describe who God is. Uh, Because 
women are created in his image as much as men are. Which to me says, if there are essential differences between men and women and their internal makeup, then that means that the best any of us can do in terms of bearing the likeness of God is an approximation because it, we need both genders to accomplish that. Sadly, even within the people of God, there's a long history of reducing the worth and agency of women. In our church, only recently did we change our own bylaws so that not only men could serve as deacons, but women were allowed to serve as deacons. And I believe that was exactly the right thing. I believe that's what the Bible demands of us. That we not say to anybody, you cannot serve in the name of Christ. We will not officially sanction your uh, ministry of service in this church. You have to do it somehow unofficially. Um, and we, we find this baked in at the very beginning in the creation of the human being itself. Women were created to be like God internally and to externally represent the kind of activity God does. It's sad to me, it's tragic, how many times in churches women have been barred from serving in a whole lot of ways because we are worried. And I think it's simply that we are misunderstanding a handful of verses in the New Testament. A handful. And uh, we have to balance our understanding of those few verses against passages like this, against passages like uh, Galatians where uh, Paul says that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. That God wants all of his children, all of his, I'm sorry, all of his creatures, all of his human family to be representing him without shackles or without fetters to be freely able to serve and do whatever needs to be done in representation of him. And I'm a big fan of encouraging women to step out and to do anything God has laid on their hearts to do. Because they were created in his image as much as I was. It's also uh, interesting that God blesses them. And again, this blessing is associated with the ability to have many children, be fruitful, become numerous, fill the earth. God wants humans to... Uh, have children and to expand and to grow and to fill the earth and we've really done a great job of that. Uh, there are a lot of people just about almost everywhere across this earth now. That's the way God designed it. He intended that to be that way. Uh, and here we read something that might cause us to cringe. We are to fill the earth and subdue it. And there's no getting around that word uh, is, off, is also used to describe uh, a nation taking over another's, enslaving, um, or uh, to impose yourself through aggression. Uh, that's kind of the meaning of that word. And I know when we read it, we look at our track record at governing this earth, and we know we've not done a great job. We have uh, stripped 
uh, aspects of, of this earth bare and destroyed whole uh, creatures that no longer exist because we just killed them for no reason and uh, for sport or whatever and eliminated entire uh, families of creatures on this earth and we, we are guilty of pollution and all these horrible things we have done to this earth. So when we read that we were created to subdue the earth, to uh, set ourselves up as administrators of the earth, we, we cringe a little bit. And I think here's what we need to remember. We were created to do this as God would do it. We were created to govern creation as God himself would govern creation because our purpose is to represent God in creation. So internally in terms of who we are and externally in terms of what we are doing, our, our call is to represent God adequately. So yes, this governorship of the earth is not meant to be selfish. It's not meant to be cruel. It's not meant to be destructive. And it's really sad that sometimes Christians are the ones opposing those who care about not polluting the earth and care about taking care of it. And obviously, sometimes they come at it from a bad theology that makes the earth some kind of a goddess that we have to serve, and that's absolutely wrong. But the other extreme is not right. Let's just pollute it and destroy it. That doesn't honor God in any way. We were created to govern creation, but to do it with the kind of kindness and generosity that God operates. But yes, we were created to exercise dominion over creation. And that's not something we should uh, apologize for or step back from. That's something we should step forward and do right. And notice that that governorship is for both male and female. It's not that men were created to rule and women were created to serve. That's a false account. Both male and female were created with all of these purposes in God's mind. Verse 29, and God said, Behold, I have given to you all vegetation that produces seed upon the face of the whole earth and every tree producing fruit with seed in it. It will be yours for food. And to every wild animal of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to every creeping thing upon the earth in which is living breath, all green vegetation will be for food. And it was so. Some people, I think, uh, misread these two verses and uh, assume that what we have here is an original description that humans were created to be vegetarians. Humans were created to only eat plants. I want you to be careful about this. We have a tendency to do this. Sometimes we read a positive thing said in the Bible and we supply the negative. Let me give you a good example of this. Jesus uh, pointed this out. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. The Bible does not say hate your enemy. It just says love your neighbor. 
but sometimes we read the negative into the positive, right? Uh, if, if you say this in the positive, then I'll assume the negative as well. But nowhere does God say you cannot eat animals. In fact, uh, we know that Abel, so as soon as Adam and Eve begin having children, Abel is raising uh, sheep, and I assume it's for the regular things you raise sheep for, is for wool, milk, and meat. I assume they've been eating animals from the beginning. Now we do have in Genesis 9 verse 2, God talks to Noah and his sons and says, in case you haven't noticed, I've given you all the creatures on earth also as food. So uh, he makes explicit there something that probably was already happening, but we have the explicit statement of it later on in Genesis. But I think it's a mistake to assume that that means that uh, nobody was eating meat before then. But uh, what God is pointing out is I've, I've, I've blessed you so that you can be fruitful and multiply and I have given you all you need to do this. I have covered the earth in vegetation and vegetation is this miraculous thing. I don't know if you ever stop and think about that. Vegetation with nothing but dirt and sunlight creates energy in food form. Sunlight. Isn't that magic? God created this whole thing that covers the whole earth and the variety is astounding. But the earth is built in with this uh, thing, th th this type of life that sustains all other life and that is able to take even sunlight and turn it into energy that can be consumed and he says, I've given this throughout the whole earth. I've given you all these plants producing seed and all the fruit. And then he talks about how this plant life is going to sustain all the animal life as well. And I think in that is kind of an implicit statement by God that plants are kind of the way I'm providing food for you, for all the animals. And you can eat the plants, you can eat the animals. I've got all of this to provide for your expansion on this earth. And all of this is there to provide so that humans can actually multiply and cover the earth. Now, in the other accounts of antiquity, uh, the gods were bugged by humans. Now, the gods, the gods duked it out with the chaos serpents and the, the chaos monsters that governed and were able to scratch out the existence of the earth and something good for them to live on. But then they were lazy and they got tired of having to dig trenches for irrigation and things like that. So they created humans as slaves, basically, so that humans would work the earth and then they could sit back and just eat and drink the stuff. But then there started being too many humans and they, the gods complained that the humans made too much noise. So they brought a flood. And then after the flood, they say, oops, now we've got to do everything. That's, that's the story. What kind of worth do you think humans had a sense of their own value in Moses' day? They were nothing but uh, kind of a, an, a, a convenience to the gods and an annoying convenience at that, something they didn't even like. God says, that's not at all your story. That's not at all 
how you came to be. And I want you to notice, in all other creation narratives, evil, chaos is the eternal thing against which forces have to fight to scratch out the existence of something good in the middle of that. But really, in the end, chaos is the eternal thing. And the goodness that we experience is a mere blip, an aberration, an interruption in the order of the, of the, the cosmos. Let me tell you, the narrative we have today for creation is exactly the same. We don't know when, but sometime everything exploded into existence and everything is just chaotically scattering out in every possible direction. And somewhere in the midst of all of that, this weird thing happened on this one planet that suddenly, poof, it was covered in vegetation and life. Nowhere else in all the universe has that happened. And the story is, uh, we're this aberration, we're this interruption, because what, what preceded us and what awaits us on the other end is nothing but darkness and chaos. That is the eternal reality. God tells it completely opposite of that. Everything is good in the beginning, and God establishes the, everything perfectly and it is in the goodness that the interruption of evil happens. And the eternal reality is not chaos wins in the end. The eternal reality is the goodness of God is the eternal thing. And evil is the short-term interruption. And uh, God is abundantly sustaining all this life necessary. And the humans are not some kind of an annoyance to God. And he's not threatened by their multiplying on the face of the earth. God uh, provides for it to happen. Verse 31, And God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So I, I cut off last week. I didn't finish reading day six because I felt like these verses warranted a sermon of their own. And I didn't want to rush through them. Uh, but we have, and this has happened throughout God's creation, uh, very carefully laid out and structured. Multiple times God has evaluated something he's just done, and he declares it good. But here at the end, after creating humankind, when God stops to survey his creation, now that he has added the crowning jewel in his creation work, and that is the human, the crowning achievement and the description of creation is you and, the, you and me. Believe it or not. Then when God sits back and looks at it all, he says not just that it's good, he says it's very good. Now, as you might not realize this at this point in the biblical story, but as we read the rest of the Bible, it becomes very clear. God does not grade on the curve. God doesn't say good enough. God is very black and white with these things. And if God says it's very good, he's not saying it's pretty good. He's saying that it is perfect. 
that it is, everything is exactly the way it should be. It is absolutely right in every possible way. There is not a shadow of anything wrong in anything. It's important that you understand this because the creation narrative you've been given says you're messed up from the beginning. You have always been messed up and that's just the way reality is. Because chaos and darkness are the dominant factors in the universe. And all we can do is try to ignore that fact and scratch out a, a hedonistic pleasure uh, <clears throat> purpose for life. <coughs> That's not at all the way it is. You see, God created everything perfectly good. And that includes us. Your true nature, your true purpose is in every way good. That's the reality of who you are. You were created by God to represent God in His creation. That's why you're here. And if we want to talk about evil, and it is a very real problem, where I'm not going to pretend it, it isn't. I'm not going to pretend it doesn't exist. It exists. But get it in your head. Get it right. The reality, the eternal reality, is this goodness we see described here. That is what's going to be happening forever. The temporary inter interruption that has its days numbered is the incursion of evil into the good creation of God. And we, if we believe it the other way around, we've got it completely backwards. That's why those who know God are optimists. Because it doesn't matter how dark today might be. It doesn't matter how horrible what just happened to me might be. I know it's going to go away. It's not going to stick around. I don't care. So you find Christians beaten and in prison singing. Because it doesn't matter. This is the temporary interruption. And there is nothing that can derail what God is up to. Because the goodness of God wins. And, and that's, that's the story we need to understand. Are you going to hitch your wagon to chaos and uh, entropy and the absolute dissolution of meaning? Are you going to hitch your wagon to the eternal good God who created you to be like him? What do we make of all this? God created us to be like him. That is the core essence of who we are, the truest description of our purpose in life. We are to move about in this wonderful world in ways that announce to the rest of creation just what kind of God made it all. We are to be his participants in the governance of the cosmos. You may think the atheists have freed you. They've told you, God's dead, which means you get to do what you want. That's appealing to five-year-olds. I get to do whatever I want. No limitations. I can eat all the sugar I want. Once you grow up, grow up. 
Don't be enticed by this absurd, childish fantasy that because there is no God, I can do whatever I want. Think about where that path leads. If there is no God and you get to do whatever you want, it's only because there's no purpose in what you're doing. There's no meaning to what you're doing. And your life is worthless and empty. And all you have is the void of absolute purposelessness. You think that's good news? Atheists try to convince you that it is. Instead, you're no accident. Chaos is not going to consume you eternally. God created you with purpose and meaning. What you need is this better version that God is telling you. You were made to be deeply connected to God Almighty, to be like Him, to act like Him. He created the whole universe for you to move in as His representative and goodness with purpose. You are no accident. I don't care how you got here. You arrived with purpose. God has eternal purposes for your life. If you'll turn to Him in faith, if you'll let Him restore you to what He intended. And maybe if you're miserable, it stems from your insistence on trying to be what you are not. Turn to God. Let him make you that crown jewel over his entire creation. We're going to sing a song of invitation. I believe God's word is a conversation with us. And it asks for a response. This is our time in every service where we provide uh, a space for response. What is God calling you to this morning? How are you going to respond to his words to you? We'll have people here at the front as we sing this final song. This is your time to come forward. Take their hand and say, listen, I feel like God is calling me to this or the other. And let them pray with you and encourage you. Let's encourage one another as we pursue God together. Let's all stand. Please come while we sing.